This is Echo Zoe Radio, episode 169 for May 2022, with Gene Clyatt on the English Reformation under Elizabeth I. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 169. For May 2022, Jean Clyatt returns for a second installment of the English Reformation history. Jean was first on with me in August of last year, where he talked about the early days of the English Reformation under Henry VIII and Bishop Thomas Cranmer. In this episode, Jean reviews a little bit of that at the beginning, and then he talks about England under Queen Elizabeth I. The first episode that we did was pretty fascinating, so if you didn't hear it, now would be a great time to pause this show and go listen to that one, which you can find at echozoe.com slash 160. This episode should, should be on Rumble if you wish to watch the video. It's also on the Locals page in both audio and video formats. If you're seeing it on YouTube, come on over and subscribe to Echozoe on Rumble too. Video will continue to go on YouTube, but I'm putting more emphasis on Rumble just to stay ahead of big tech censorship. Also, in regards to social media, you can find Echo Zoe on Twitter, Truth Social, Gab, Parler, Getter, and Telegram. And also, you can find an up-to-date list of all these various websites, all these social media sites. And then if any are added, any new ones come along, those you can also find uh, when appropriate at echozoe.com slash linktree. Just a reminder, the film Jerusalem's King is up at the Locals page. Come join us at Locals. Use the promo code in the pinned comment to come peek behind the paywall where you can watch the film. I'm still quite proud of my involvement in the production of Jerusalem's King, even though that involvement is pretty limited. And I high rec highly recommend seeing it. You can do so completely free by using that promo code and watching it at echozoe.locals.com. Finally, I want to remind everyone about the Christian podcast community. Echo Zoe is just one of many excellent biblically faithful podcasts that you'll find at the Christian podcast community. There are a lot. In fact, our guest this month, Gene Clyatt, is one of them. Gene does a show called Squirrel Chatter, in which he reads from the Book of Common Prayer and various scriptures. And then he also talks about a general topic of the day. You can find an entire list of all the podcasts available at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. You can also subscribe to the shows you want to hear directly. Uh, on individual feeds or subscribe to a community feed and get all of the shows from the entire community in one big feed. Show notes for this episode are available at equizoi.com slash 169. And that's where you'll find an outline of our discussion today as well as a few additional resources. With that, here's my discussion with Gene. Gene, uh, it's a pleasure to have you back for uh, your second episode here. Yeah, it's good to be Echo back. Zoe. And uh, I don't know if you heard the end of the year episode, but yours was the, was Andrew Rappaport's favorite episode. 
I did hear that, and that put a lot of pressure on me for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, no pressure intended here. I got to tell you a funny story about Andrew. We were down at Shepherd's Conference, and we're sitting sitting at a table having coffee and snacks between sessions. And my wife sent me a picture of Darby the hamster because she's home taking care of the hamster while I'm down there. Uh-huh. So I'm passing the the picture around and we're all laughing at my hamster and everything. And all of a sudden Andrew goes, wait a minute, there's really a hamster. I thought it was just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Cause my, my podcast ends with <laughs> squirrel chatter was recorded in front of a live studio hamster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Darby the hamster. That's where that comes from, huh? Darby the hamster is right yeah. here. He's yeah. right beside me. So. Are you Darby? This is like Darby the fourth or this is Darby the fifth. Fifth. Okay. Darby the hamster, the fifth of her name. Long may she scurry. Darby the fourth died about a month after I got back from Shepherd's Conference. So she died into March, early April. So we've just had Darby five here for uh, six weeks, maybe. Okay. <laughs> and how how long does a typical hamster live? Typically two to three years. Two to yeah, three years. they they don't live long, which is really sad. I I would love a a hamster to live longer. Yeah, my um, uh, my third son has one upstairs, and he's had it for yeah. I don't know if he's coming up on a year now. That thing's yeah. got to be almost middle aged. Yeah, do you have a? Is that a full size hamster or one of the dwarf hamsters? It's a. Uh, he named it Robbie after some breed that is Rob something Rob. Robo oh, Robo hamsters. Yeah. So it's a little one. It's a little one. Yeah. 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 Robos are, Robos are sweet. Darby. Darby the fourth was a, was a Robo hamster. Okay. But they are the, they are the longest lived of the dwarf hamsters. Oh, they maybe. are also the fastest dwarf hamsters and they are the least domesticated dwarf hamsters. Oh, because they've only been around for maybe as, as pets for about 10 years. Oh really? So they're they're not a long history of domestication. Okay. So it takes a takes a lot of work to tame one. Okay. And they were matter of fact, when we brought uh, Darby four home, she spent the first twenty minutes in our house behind the bookcase. <laughs> okay. I was trying to pick her up out of the carrier and put her in her cage, and she took off. Oh. So. Well, I tried to do when I was a kid and had a hamster. We had the ball you'd stick them in and then they can run around the house yeah i got one of those and my son watches way too many youtube videos for people who are like big hamster rights activists and stuff so he's like no we can't get one because their little toes get stuck in the holes or something and then that's bad that can happen but i've I've had i've had hamsters running around in the hamster balls once he hears from his youtubers like what you know the proper thing to do with hamsters that's the way it's going to be how old is he? He's uh, 10. He'll be 11 in August. Okay, yeah. Oh. Pretty impressionable at that age. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So last time we talked about the early English Reformation, you know, the beginnings of the English Reformation. We covered a lot last time. Yeah. We, we, started, uh, we started with the background and looked at the War of the Roses mm-hmm. and why Henry VIII would need an heir. Yep. Then we looked at the reign of Henry VIII and Henry's break with Rome to because he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn and uh, all of that. Um, and that was what started the English Reformation. So, of course, 
Henry's reasons were purely political and or personal. Um, he wasn't a theological Protestant, but his Archbishop of uh, uh, Archbishop of uh, Cranmer. Yeah, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember the head of the, the Church of England or the, the head prelate of the Church of England. And uh, he was reformed. And so he was working to reform the church. Yep. And then, but he wasn't able to do a lot when Henry was alive because Henry was very much, yeah, he did, he was, Henry was, wanted to be a popeless Catholic. He wanted the Catholic church, the Catholic religion, just without having to deal with the Pope. Mm -hmm. So that was his whole thing. So. You know, that all goes through, and you know we're we're looking at the history of Protestant Protestant. <laughs> I'm not having trouble with that. to say, yeah, protest Protestantism, Protestantism, yep. ah, in England, and that means we're looking at the royal family. We're looking. Uh, just to, at, I don't mean to interrupt, but I was yeah. going to point out if anyone's listening to this one didn't hear the that one, it's echozoe.com/slash. 160. It was episode 160. Excellent. That'll 60. take you right to it. What number is this one? This is 169. 169. Yeah. And the Ooh. first one of the 15th year of Echo Zoe Radio. Oh, congratulations. So. Congratulations. Yeah. So, you know, Henry reigns for 37 years. Actually, almost 38 years. As king. And he dies at the age of 55, when he was only 17 when he became king. And he kind of left a mess. Yeah. Because he left a nine-year-old son as heir. That was and Edward. He let, that was Edward VI. And he had two daughters who were older than Edward from his first two marriages. One from... from uh, Catherine of Aragon, that would be Mary, and then Elizabeth from Anne Boleyn. So he's got two daughters, one of whose mom he divorced, and the others whose mom he had executed. And then he has his prized son, Edward. Well, then Edward goes and dies young. Edward died at the age of 15 after being king for only six and a half years. So he was a, a kid, while he was a kid, England was governed by a, a council that was made up of people that, that Henry had named. And they were 16 men, they were all Protestant, and that included Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so it was during those six years that Cranmer really pushed the English church into Protestantism. Because they'd been, you know, basically, you know, skirting the line with it when Henry was alive. He was doing what he was able to, but he couldn't do a lot. But during those six years when, when Edward was king, that's when he advanced. That's when he started changing the liturgy. That's when he came out with the Book of Common Prayer in English. That was when he, you know, wrote his Book of Homilies, which were, because you had all these Catholic priests who are now head of, Protestant churches, and he basically wrote a book of sermons and sent them out 
<laughs> you know, here, read these. Instead, you know, don't write your own sermons. Just go read these. <laughs> so, um, and that was because he was trying to get Protestant theology out to the people. Mm-hmm. But when Edward dies at age nine, at age 15, he had named Lady Jane Grey as his heir, who was a Protestant who was 16 years old. And she was, she, we call her the nine days queen. Well, he, so he's naming an heir at such a young age. Was he sick and like knew he was at that store? Well, yeah, he, he had been fairly very healthy all of his life. But then when he was 15, he got really sick. They, they guess it was probably tuberculosis. Okay. Just judging from the symptoms that, you know, the chroniclers wrote down. Mm -hmm. Of course, they had no, no germ theory, no tests or anything for, for any of that. So they, they yeah, figured leeches. Yeah. They, they had <laughs> leeches and bleedings and stuff. Um, so we don't know what it was. We, you know, we're, we're guessing that it was probably tuberculosis just looking at uh, the symptoms that we have available to us that were written down. So he spent the last, you know, tuberculosis isn't fast. He spent several months basically bedridden in bad health, knew that he was, was not going to make it or not likely to make it. And so he actually hand wrote a document of secession. Okay. Which was then witnessed by like his doctor or somebody was in the room and they took that to parliament. Okay. And parliament okayed it. And what it did is it gave the throne to his Protestant cousin, who was um Jane Grey, who was like I said, she was 15 or 16 years old at the time. And so she's named queen in, in London mm -hmm. and everybody's scratching their head. Who is this girl? Why is she queen? Meanwhile, Mary Tudor, who was the Roman Catholic daughter of Henry VIII by uh, Catherine of Aragon, who, you know, Henry had divorced her mother. Henry had forced her to stand before Parliament at the age of like 12 or 14 and tell Parliament that she was illegitimate. Oh, okay. And renounce her right to the throne. You know, this is a very angry young lady. Mm -hmm. I say young lady, she becomes Queen of England at the age of 37. So she has lived her entire life from the time she was like 10 years old. I think she was about 10 or 11 when Henry divorced her mom. She's lived, you know, 27 of her 37 years in, you know, kind of angry resentment and, and, you know, was out of favor for most of that time. Um, she and her father did have some sort of reconciliation shortly before he died, but, you know, she wasn't at court. She wasn't, you know, she, she was significantly older than both Anne Boleyn and Edward. So she wasn't raised with them. Mm -hmm. you know, she was already up and out. You know, they were kind of raised together because, uh, you know, um, but she wasn't. So she wasn't part of that. And she was very much 
um, a Roman Catholic. So she comes to power. She marries Prince Philip of Spain, who is a Roman Catholic. He's also, uh, he, he would become, uh, in 1556, just a couple of years later, she, she became queen in 1553. 1556, she, or 1554, she marries Prince Philip, who becomes king of Spain in 1556. So Mary is now queen of England and Spain. Oh, wow. Okay. And Philip is king of England. He's married to the queen. He wasn't prince consort. He was given the title king. Oh, wow. And and was kind of co-ruler, although he spent most of his time in Spain. He wasn't in England. He was like 11, 12 years younger than she was. Oh. You know, so she's 37. Mm -hmm. He spent a lot of time in Spain. It was a political marriage, mm-hmm. you know, um, but uh, she thought, you know, a couple of times she thought she was pregnant, but she never was pregnant. She ended up dying of what is believed to either be stomach cancer or ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. which caused a swelling of the stomach and everything. Everybody thought she was pregnant twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, she dies. She only reigned five and a half years. But during those five and a half years, she tried to undo all the Protestant reforms that her, her dad had done. And she ends up killing 300 people, you know, including Thomas Cranmer, you know, Latimer and Ridley, you know, several of the bishops who were head of the English church. And this was, up, uh, I was just going over the show notes from last episode. Yeah. This was the White Horse Inn group. Yeah, the White Horse Inn Group was a lot of the people that had led the the Reformation in in uh, in England. Well, she had many. She had three hundred people burned at the stake. And Fox's Book of Martyr, Fox's Book of Martyrs, is really about that. Okay, you know um, that was the Marian martyrs, the the people that that Mary had executed. This is the reason why Protestants gave her the nickname Bloody Mary because she had all these people killed. And uh, I say Fox's Book of Martyr lists 312 individuals who were burnt at the stake or hanged or died in prison under Mary. And hundreds more fled to the continent. Uh, more about them in a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, but she was there for, for five and a half years, and then she died in uh, November of 1558. And Elizabeth, her younger sister, becomes... Queen of England at the age of 25. Um, so she's another, she's a young monarch when she comes to the throne. Now, because she cannot make any changes until she's crowned, Elizabeth's coronation is a Roman Catholic ceremony. Oh, okay. Because of her older sister returning the country to Catholicism. So her, her, She's Pope was given, Catholic, right? Yeah, she's a no. Her older that, sister was, was very much a Pope papist. Okay, so she brought yeah, back. She was a Roman a, Catholic. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And so Elizabeth's coronation is a Roman Catholic ceremony, but she leaves the room during the mass. She just gets up and leaves, goes and changes, and gets ready for the ball that evening. Okay, you know? <laughs> and then she starts overdo undoing all this stuff 
Um, she wished, but she wished to end the religious strife. She didn't want to be hostile to Catholicism like her brother Edward had been. And she didn't want to be, you know, hostile to Catholicism like Mary had been towards Protestantism. She was more recon reconciliatory. Mm -hmm. She wanted to have, she wanted to smooth the waters. She wanted to have, you know, kind of get rid of the, the tension, get the peace coming back. She was a Protestant, but she didn't want to be the Protestant queen. She wanted to be the queen who was Protestant. Yeah. You know, and uh, so she was trying really to, to be more political and less theological, kind of like her father, Henry. But at the same time, she herself was Protestant. I said, Henry kind of wanted nothing to do with the Pope while remaining Catholic. She didn't want the harsh theology in her Protestantism. So this is really the start of the, the Anglican middle road, okay. middle path idea, mm -hmm. that they're not hardline Protestant, but they're not Roman Catholic. This is, it kind of starts with Elizabeth yeah. because she did, she was trying to promote peace. She, she didn't want all this fighting and everything. So she, of course, issues a prayer book to replace because Mary had gotten rid of the 1552 prayer book that, that Cranmer had written. So in 1559, Elizabeth issues her own prayer book and it was revised to be less dogmatically Protestant. For example, I just copied a couple of passages here. In the 1552 communion ceremony, it reads this way. And it's got a, instructions for the minister, and it calls him a minister. Okay. So, and when he delivereth the bread, he shall say, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. The 1559 communion says this, And when he delivereth the bread, he shall say, The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul in everlasting life, and take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee. Feed on him in thine heart by faith with thanksgiving. So, she left the door open for transubstantiationism. Mm -hmm. she, you know, the, before it was like, this is in remembrance of. Mm -hmm. so the, but her ceremony was very much, it left that door open for transubstantiationism. The other thing that she did, it, it, it hints at sacramentalism. Did you catch that? A little bit. Where it says, yeah. Preserve thy body and soul for everlasting life. It, it kind of gives the hint that there's something meritorious about taking communion. Mm -hmm. That's that's sacramentalism. Yep. So she kind of didn't entirely go back to a Roman Catholic mass. And in fact, her prayer book forbids the holding up of the host. Yep. You know, like the, the, the Catholics do. So there wasn't a, you know, transubstantiation in the ceremony, but the door's still left open that, you know, there's something here. 
she did not outlaw being a Roman Catholic. But she did return the Church of England officially to Protestantism, but a less reformed Protestantism. Now, one of the reasons has to be John Knox. And this is kind of kind of sad because in a lot of ways, John Knox is a hugely admirable guy. Mm-hmm. John Knox, he had led to the continent when he was a, he was a, actually a, he was Scottish, but he was an Anglican priest under Cranmer. Okay. So he had, he was in England and he was part of the English Reformation under Cranmer. Well, when Mary became queen and Protestantism was outlawed, he's one of the guys that fled to Geneva. And he actually became friends with Calvin. Well, he wrote a book, or a pamphlet, really. Listen to this title. You'll love this. The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regimen of Women. Okay. Okay. Monstrous meant unnatural. Regimen was a ru- um, meant rule, uh-huh. rulership of women, the unnatural rulership of women. He's taking aim at Mary. He's taking aim at Mary, who was a Catholic queen of England. Was there a little bit of uh, the the intermediate one? Is it Jane Grey? No, he's not taking. He's not shooting at Jane Grey. Remember, Jane Grey is already dead. Mary had her executed. Sure, but right, she's not his target. He had specific targets in mind. He had three women in mind: Mary Tudor, Queen of England. Mary, Queen of Scots, who was also Queen of France. She was she was ruler of Scotland, and she was married to the King of France. And Mary's mother, who was also named Mary, and she was Mary, Queen of Scots, regent in Scotland, while Mary was in France. Okay. okay. This is the target of her. These are all Roman Catholic women rulers. This was the target. Now, uh, Mary of Geese is the Dowager Queen of Scotland, who is the regent on behalf of her daughter. So he presents his case against female rulers. It's a blanket case against female rulers. Women should not. Be rule, have rule, you know. Uh-huh. And he publishes this just months before Mary dies and Elizabeth comes to the throne. So this is very brand new with this new incoming queen uh-huh. who is now ruling England, who is a Protestant who should be allied with John Knox, but she's very offended by this. She never forgives him. He's going to die in a few years, but she never forgives him. And this effectively cut Elizabeth off from the more theological stream of Protestantism. Did I say her Protestantism was more political? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't know what she really believed. 
you know, I, I, I have a hard time, you know, understanding because she didn't talk about it. And some of the things like in her personal chapel, she had a crucifix. You know, not a cross. She had a crucifix. Um, she had her liturgy in her private chapel was in Latin. But it wasn't the mass. She forbade the minister from lifting up the host and all of that. Sure. So she she had a she's an interesting blend of beliefs and stuff. So and, and I guess that kind of brings us to Mary Queen of Scots. We gotta talk about her too. Um because she plays a she's pretty important throughout Elizabeth's reign. Okay. Now, Mary Queen of Scots was Elizabeth's cousin. She was the granddaughter of Henry's sister. She's a Roman Catholic. Okay. And I said she's the widow of Francis II of France. He died in 1560. And she was Queen of, queen of France for a while. And then after she was widowed, she returned to Scotland and took over the throne and was ruling Scotland. In 1566, so she's been a widow for 10 years, or for six years. In 1566, she marries Henry, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. Now, Darnley, now here's, here's a soap opera warning. And, and I should say this, that we're dealing with the royal family of England. We're dealing with kings, queens, dukes, earls, lords, etc., most of whom are related to one another because royals, nobles marry nobles, mm-hmm. you know? Then they're not only married to each other throughout England or related to each other throughout England, they're also related to most of the crowned heads of Europe because political alliances, you trade daughters back and forth. My daughter will marry your son. We'll be friends now kind of thing. Happened all the time, just kind of as a diplomatic way. And in a lot of ways, the trials and tribulations of royals is less believable than the plots of most soap operas. <laughs> but it's absolutely true. Yeah. And, and so I got a soap opera warning here. This is the, the soap opera warning involving Mary, Queen of Scots. Okay. So Mary's married to Lord Darnley. His last name is Stuart, Henry Stuart. Darnley is murdered. Okay. Now, Mary was pregnant, and Darnley was suspicious that her child's real father was actually her secretary, a guy by the name of David Rizzio. So Darnley personally murders Rizzio in front of Mary. Wow. Okay. Okay. I think this guy is your lover. I'm going to kill him in front of you while she's pregnant. So Mary has Darnley killed. Not directly. She plots with some people to have him bumped off. And then she makes plan 
wants to marry the man who's suspected of having of killing Darnley. Okay. I said it's it's you know it, this is this is all pure soap opera stuff, right? Now, meanwhile, it's just kind of like would right. cause you to wonder if he's not the real father that yeah that Darnley didn't suspect the wrong guy. Yeah, it, and and that's interesting, but the the child has been born and the child's name is James. James okay. is going to become King James. Hmm? So he's going to be King James the sixth of Scotland and King James the first of England. Same guy. <laughs> this is the the son of Mary Queen of Scots. Well, after Darnley is killed, twenty six Scottish peers of the realm raise an army and capture Mary and force her to abdicate the throne in favor of her 13 month old son, James. So at the age of 13 months, James becomes James the sixth of Scotland. Okay. All right. So, and that's in, uh, uh, 1568. And then Mary queen of Scots flees to England because she escapes. They, they want to try her for murder in Scotland. They want to try her for the murder of Donnelly. Okay. And I think everybody forgets that Donnelly killed this other guy right in front of her, you know, sure. but, but they want to try. But it says something about where their legal system was that even the queen is not going right. to get away with murder. That was one of the reasons why they made her abdicate, because if she wasn't queen, they'd be able to try her. Okay. Um, and one of the concepts that's, that's starting to rise up at this point in time is this divine right of Kings, mm -hmm. this absolute divine right of Kings. It's really starting to come into play at this time. And you go back, I mean, beforehand, you know, Kings were kind of like first among equals among all the, the peers of the realm. Sure. You know, this is why. You know, the barons had no problem revolting against King John and making him sign the Magna Carta. You know, wait a minute, you're not an absolute ruler. You, mm -hmm. you're, you know, well, now this whole idea of absolute rule and the divine right of kings is really starting to come into play. This is a growing concept. And uh, so they don't want to kill Mary because while she's queen, because that would be wrong. So they want her to step down as queen so they can try her for murder. Well, she escapes to England and she asks Elizabeth to help her retake her throne in Scotland. And Elizabeth says, why don't you come over here to this castle and stay in this locker room for a while? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she has Mary locked up in England. She doesn't want to send her back to Scotland because she doesn't want to see a queen executed because she doesn't like the idea that you can execute queens being a queen herself. Sure. You don't want to give anybody any ideas, right? <laughs> Understandable. But she doesn't want to send Mary to France because Mary is her closest relative. Remember, Elizabeth is unmarried. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth has no children. Elizabeth has no heir. Technically, Mary is her heir. 
Okay. So she doesn't want to send her to Catholic France where she used to be queen, where she could gather support for restoring a Catholic monarchy to England. So this is all going on now. So Mary's a rallying point for the English Roman Catholics. So Elizabeth wants to to lock her up. And the fact that, that Mary is this catalyst for the Roman Catholics and the center of Roman Catholic desires to return England to Rome, she's the focal point of all sorts of papist plots to overthrow Mary. Now, Mary's had about 10 years of peace, or not Mary, Elizabeth, overthrow yeah. Elizabeth. Elizabeth has had about 10 years of peace. She's, you know, been queen for, for 10 years. She's been working towards, um, you know, this kind of reconciliation thing. She hasn't been arresting Catholics and throwing them in jail. She hasn't been killing priests. She hasn't been doing any of that. But she had an, an excellent intelligence network. She had a guy, a spy master, Sir Francis Walsingham. Walsingham. Walsingham basically invented modern espionage. Okay. This is, I mean, when you think of everything that the CIA and MI6 does and everything that OSS did in World War II yep. and how spy networks are run. Yep. This is the guy who invented all this stuff. Okay. He is a Protestant. He's a committed Protestant. And he becomes Elizabeth's first secretary. He's like her chief advisor, and he is her spy master. And there's there's like three or four guys that are real close to Elizabeth and are advising her on her reign, and this guy's one of them. And, and he is the spy master. Well, he was, I said he was a Protestant and he had fled Egypt or fled Egypt, fled England, <laughs> fled Egypt. Yeah. Let's just bring in another nation. He's now he's Moses. Part of the world. Yeah. He had fled England during the reign of Mary Tudor. So he was one of the guys who went to Geneva. Sure. You know, and, and that's where the, that's where the English Protestants went. Well, now he's got quite a ring. That, they went that to would Geneva. make sense. Yeah. He's got so a he well put to together. go back to. He's, on using, his, uh, he's using double agents. Yep. He's got paid agents that he's trained. You know, he's got his version of James Bond running around, guys that he's trained and he's given them, you know, Aston Martin DB5s and, and Walter PPKs, and they're driving all over England spying for him and, and all over the continent, too. He's got guys in France. He's got guys in Spain. He has built a network of spies that was really unmatched in the ancient world, in the early modern world. It, it's mm-hmm. phenomenal. This guy, this guy, there's a, there's a, uh, was it, uh, the queen's agent is a biography of this guy. Okay. Uh, written by a guy named Cooper. Great book. Great book. Just goes into to everything that, that, that he accomplished as Elizabeth spy master. Well, after Elizabeth had been queen for about 10 years, she still hasn't married. There's no children. There's no heir. And there's a growing 
discontent among the Roman Catholic nobility of England because they've lost their power. Because all of Elizabeth's advisors are Protestants. And these are the guys who were the kingmakers. These are mm-hmm. the, the these are the top nobility of England for hundreds of years. And now they're kind of having to take a back seat to most of most of Elizabeth's advisors were were not truly nobles. She knighted a lot of them. You know, so she gave them a title of nobility, but they were mostly commoners. Now they were from well-educated families, but they're mostly commoners. So they're not happy. So in 1569, which is, let's see, when did, when did Mary come to the throne? Or when did Elizabeth come to the throne? Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558. So this is 11 years after she was been on the throne. We have a plot called the Revolt of the Northern Earls. Okay. And this involves um, two earls and a duke, mainly, of northern England. And they are Thomas Percy, who is the Earl of Northumberland. He's Roman Catholic. Charles Neville, who is Earl of Westmoreland also a Roman Catholic. Um, And Thomas Howard, who's Duke of Norfolk. Now, he is publicly a Protestant, but he's secretly a Roman Catholic. And so they have this plot to return. Every one of these plots, there were four main plots against Elizabeth. And they're all the same plot, basically. They want to get rid of Elizabeth and return England to Roman Catholicism. Who's the heir at this time? At I mean, this it's time, Mary. the heir is Mary, Queen of Scots. Right? Mm-hmm. So here's the plot. The plan is that the Duke of Norfolk, which is uh, How- Thomas Howard, is going to marry Mary, Queen of Scots. Okay. Spain is going to give military aid to overthrow Elizabeth, and they're going to put Thomas and Mary on the throne as king and queen of England and return England to Roman Catholicism. But Robert Dudley, who's one of Elizabeth's advisors, one of these two or three guys around Elizabeth, learns about the plot. And so Elizabeth moves Mary, Queen of Scots, to a more secure location. Now, she's not in prison, okay? She's basically a quote-unquote guest of Friends of Elizabeth, you know? Okay. Because it, it's, it's one of those things. Like of, a royal you know, witness protection program? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's, it's more like, you know, you're going to go stay with my friends. You just can't leave. But she's, <laughs> okay. but she's not locked up. She's in, you know, she's spending her time doing royal things. She's, you know, going hunting and going falconing and everything. But it's like, you know, you're going to live with these people and you can't leave. <laughs> so she, she's basically living with friends of Elizabeth, right? Well, Mary gets moved to a different friend of Elizabeth in a more secure castle. Um, 
the rebels capture the city of Durham and they celebrate the Roman Catholic Mass in Durham Cathedral. Okay. Yeah. And their 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 plans were to march on York and take York and then march on to London. Well, the trouble was they were expecting a huge uprising to join them. You know, because nobody's happy, right? And everybody else is like, yeah, we're fine. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but they're convinced that, that, you know, half the nobles or more are truly Roman Catholic. There's going to be a mass uprising against Elizabeth. We just got to get it started kind of thing. Well, nobody else rises up with them. And then the Spanish army never shows up. <laughs> and Spain had, had offered help. Now, the interesting thing about Spain, remember, the king of Spain is Philip II. Philip II had been married to Mary Tudor. After Mary died, Philip proposed to Elizabeth. Oh. To, you know, because the political match. Yeah. You know, and I think he liked being king of England. And Elizabeth turned him down. Uh, Elizabeth would never marry, by the way. And, and I think the primary reason that she would never marry is that it would have been expected, had she married, that she would give her political authority to her husband. But she didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't going to get married and give up her power, basically. Sure. But Philip had, you know, he had been king of England. He was Roman Catholic. He was staunchly Roman Catholic. So the, the Pope had been involved in this. The Pope had given his blessing to this overthrow. And in fact, the Pope was assured that this could not fail. And so before he even got news of whether or not it was failed or had succeeded, he excommunicates Elizabeth. All part of the same plot, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I said the rebels captured Durham, but they gave up their plans to march on York when none of their support showed up. Mm -hmm. So they end up with, with like 6,000 men facing Queen Elizabeth's nobles with 30,000 men. I was like, this is not going to work. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Northumberland is captured and beheaded. Westmoreland flees to the continent and he dies in poverty. And then Norfolk, who is the guy who was supposed to marry Mary Queen mm -hmm. of Scots and become king, he's captured. He confesses everything, promises to never do it again, and Elizabeth pardons and releases him. Okay. Now, uh, my notes here say there are plots, plural. Oh, yeah, this is just the first is one. This, is this uh, pardon going to come back to haunt her? It is, actually. <laughs> in the, yeah, it, it, it very much is. Matter of fact, just a couple years later. Okay. So now uh, Elizabeth also has 700 Roman Catholics who were involved hung. Okay. Now, a lot of people 
often point to that and say, well, everybody calls Mary Bloody Mary. She killed 300 Protestants. But here Elizabeth had 700 Catholics executed, and nobody calls her Bloody Liz. Well, here, well here's the uh, thing. Yeah, there's a big difference. There's a big difference. These are people that had actually committed treason. Yeah. They had revolted against, you know, she wasn't their Catholicism just, wasn't directly the reason was, why they were right. Executed. Their Catholicism was the reason why they revolted, but they weren't killed because they were Catholic. They were killed because they revolted because of the revol revolution. Yeah. The peasants are revolting. Um, so, you know, and the Pope excommunicates Elizabeth, you know, the, the, the papal bull doesn't reach England until after it's all over. But by excommunicating Elizabeth, what the Pope is saying is, all you good Catholics are now free to overthrow her mm. because she's not legitimate. She's a, you know, she's a Protestant. She's been excommunicated. She's not a Christian. She's not a rightful monarch. All you Roman Catholics are free to overthrow her. So. And and because of this, Elizabeth begins to crack down on Roman Catholicism. She's now starting to look suspiciously at the Roman Catholics in England. And she's now learned that for, for sure that she can't trust Mary Queen of Scots. Mm -hmm. Well, that was in 1558 or 1569. In 1571, we have the Rodolfi plot. This is the second plot against Elizabeth. Now, three years later. Three years later. Now, the guy, Rodolfi, is an Italian banker, and he's a spy for the Pope. He bankrolls a plot to kill Elizabeth, Mary, Mary Queen of Scots. <laughs> same plot. To Duke Norfolk, same guy, yeah. who, who Elizabeth had just pardoned, and put them on the throne instead of Elizabeth. Now the plot is discovered because Elizabeth has the best spy master in the world. He's got his fingers in all these pies. He knows what's happening before they know, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so the, the plot is discovered. Rodolfi flees England. The, this Italian banker dude who works for the Pope, he flees England. This time Elizabeth has the Duke of Norfolk beheaded. She's done with him. He's had his chance. Spain's ambassador is expelled because Spain had offered money, you know, because your your three big your three big uh, three big uh, Roman Catholic powers are involved in this. You have an Italian banker. You have the King of Spain. Actually, I don't think the French were involved here. Yeah, the French were not involved in this plot. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, but again, it was done with the, the Pope's approval. And uh, so after this happens, Elizabeth has new laws passed, now making it a crime to shelter Roman Catholic priests and a crime to convert people to Roman Catholicism. So this was the Rodolfi plot. Now, again, nothing happened. The plot was basically 
headed before, you know, they didn't try to kill the queen. They wanted to kill the queen, but they were all captured before they actually did it. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, it, they were, what was used to convict them was communications between them because Elizabeth's spy master had gotten a hold of all the letters and, or at least enough of them, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, then in 1583, so this is 10 years later. Okay. No, 12 years later, you have the Throckmorton plot. And this one involves the Duke of yeah. Duke of Geese, or Geis, G-U-I-S-E. He's French. Yeah. He's related to Mary, Queen of Scots. Yeah. He's so like, they want to make queen again, right? He's one of her uncles, right? So this plot was he was to invade England with Spanish troops. Okay. French guy with Spanish troops. French guy, Spanish troops, invade England, kill Elizabeth, put Mary, Queen of Scots on the throne. And then marry that other guy? No, because the other guy's dead now. Okay. The other guy was executed in 1571. No, this one, this Duke of Geese from France is going to marry Oh, no, he's gonna marry her. Okay. Now he is a, he is an uncle by marriage. He's not a blood relation. Okay. Remember, his his uh, Mary's mom. So oh, creepy, but not like yeah, super creepy. He's creepy, but not super creepy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, he's either a dozen a, a cousin or an uncle by yeah. by marriage, because okay. remember Mary Queen of Scots' mother was Mary of Geese. Okay. So she's married into this family or she came from this family and married the King of Scotland, who was Mary Queen of Scots father. And I haven't reviewed back that far to really put that (laughs) relationship together, but she's, he's going to marry Mary. This, this Duke of Geese guy is going to marry Mary and become King of England return. It sounds to me like at this point, Elizabeth needs to just be done with Mary. Well, she's not going to be done with Mary yet. <laughs> well, but it sounds yeah. like she should have figured out. She should have, yeah. Is... So anyway, the there was an English Roman Catholic named Francis Throckmorton. He was a courier carrying Mary, messages between Mary, Queen of Scots, this guy in France, this Duke of Guise, and um, the Spanish ambassador. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's named after him. He was the guy that kind of that Elizabeth's spymaster used to connect these people into the plot. Well, Throckmorton, and and that's the whole thing, that Elizabeth's spymaster, Walsingham, had had Throckmorton under surveillance the entire time. So they were reading the mail. Okay. Well, Throckmorton is arrested, tortured to get all the information out of him. And interestingly, Walsingham did not use torture often. He did not want to be the reputation of the bad guy. And mm-hmm. he only used torture when he already had the information. He could already prove that Throckmorton was involved in the plot. So the torture was, ju- was not to get a confession out of him. The torture was to get the rest of the information out of him so that okay. they could round up other plotters. Throckmorton is then executed and, and that was by tongue drawn and quartered okay which 
Yeah, if you ever watch Braveheart, that's what they do to William Wallace at the end of that movie, mm-hmm. hung, drawn, and quartered, which would be they would they would hang you until you pass out, then they would let you down, then they would cut open your guts and pull your intestines out. That's the drawing part. Or draw out your intestines while you're alive and conscious. Then they would cut off your head and then they would cut your body into four parts. That's the quartering. And Mm -hmm. the, the four parts of your body were then sent to the four corners of England as a warning. This is what happens to traitors. Okay. That was the whole thing behind hung, drawn and quartered. And in fact, being drawn and quartered was why the U S constitution outlaws cruel and unusual punishment. That's cruel and unusual punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is the, the torturing someone to death as yeah. opposed to, you know, if you, basically, you know, yeah, there are things that people should be executed for. Just kill them. Don't yeah. torture them to death. And so that was, you know, that's what happened to Throckmorton. He was arrested, tortured, and executed. He was the only plotter who was executed. Others either fled England or were imprisoned. Okay. He's the only guy killed. And remember, this is another plot where nothing actually happened. They uncovered the plot and did away with the plotters, but nothing ever happened. But at this point, after this happens, the, the law that had made it illegal to shelter a Roman Catholic priest, that used to be punishable by a fine. If you were caught sheltering a Roman Catholic priest, you were fined. And a lot of nobles just kept their priest on their estate, and they paid the fine. Okay. You know, he's our priest. He does mass for us here at the house. We pay the fine for sheltering him. Well, at this point, that law has changed, and it now sheltering a Roman Catholic priest is a capital crime. Okay. You can be put to death for it because there were quite a few Jesuit priests involved in the plot. Sure. You know, and, and because again, this was done with the Pope's approval. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings us to 1586 and the Babington plot. <laughs> this is number four. This is now? number four. Okay. The Babington plot in 1586 is virtually identical to the Throckmorton plot of five years before. Okay. The only difference is that we now have a guy named Babington who's the courier instead of a guy named Throckmorton. And this is the final straw for Mary, Queen of Scots. Mainly because in the Throckmorton plot, they had evidence of communication given to Mary, you know, that we're going to do this. But they didn't have communication from Mary to the plotters. Okay. In this one, they do. In this one, they have, you know, basically Mary saying, yeah, do it. I'm in. (laughs) Okay. All right. So this is the end of the line for Mary. But the plot again is to kill Queen Elizabeth, put Mary, Queen of Scots on the throne of England, and restore England to Roman Catholicism. Same plot every time. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, and, and at this point, Mary, Queen of Scots, is executed. That's she, she has her head cut off. So that is the end of Mary, Queen of Scots. 
So now the Queen of England has executed the mother of the King of Scotland, who is her heir. Because with Mary's death, James VI of Scotland becomes Queen Elizabeth's heir. Okay. <laughs> now we're... Right? I see where you're going. So that's 18, or 1586. Then in 1588, just two years later, you have the Spanish Armada. Finally, Spain is going to take direct action to invade England, overthrow Elizabeth, and put Philip II on the throne. His claim to the throne being he had been married to Mary Tudor. Mm-hmm. He had been king of England. And the Pope says he should be king of England again. And the Pope says. And the Pope says. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and among Roman Catholics, the Pope said had quite a bit of, yep. and, and the, po- the papacy had been kingmakers for generations in Europe. And it wasn't until the Protestant Reformation that they had any nations thumbing their noses at them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So there was a the, you know, this 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 is again a Roman Catholic plot with the Pope's approval to take out Elizabeth and put a Roman Catholic on the throne of England. This time it is the first one that's not Mary. First time it's not Mary because Mary's dead. Because Mary's dead, and it can't be James of Scotland because James of Scotland is a Protestant. So that, you know, it's, it's a very convoluted thing, but now we're finally going to invade England, kill Elizabeth. All right. Well, the, 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 it didn't work out. The Spanish Armada, they were going to sail from Spain to the Netherlands, which was a Spanish Spanish territory. It's all the Holy Roman Empire was was Spain. Uh-huh. You know, so that's that's basically all of Europe except France. <laughs> was, okay. You know, and Southern Europe, you know, everything, you know, Norway and Sweden and everything, you know, Scandinavia was a different animal. But, sure. you know, Germany, Austria, all of that was Holy Roman Empire, which is the same family as the Spanish royalty. So it's all tied in together. So they're they're going to sail to the Netherlands and load up troops and ferry them across the English Channel and invade England. Well, on the way, there are three battles that are that are all within like five days of each other in 1588. Okay. The the first battle, Sir Francis Drake, who is Elizabeth's admiral, he engages the Spanish briefly as they enter the English Channel on the south end. And there's a, a virtually no effect on either side. The, the English do capture a Spanish ship. Um, okay. Now, we're hitting an hour. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I, don't no, think we're, I don't think we're going to get stuff. to James. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save James for next time. But uh, the, the, they hit him the first time, and they, they do end up capturing a couple of Spanish ships. The English do. 
The English ships are newer, they're smaller, they're faster, and they're better armed. The Spanish ships uh, can carry a lot of troops, but they don't have any troops on board yet. They're going to the Netherlands to pick up troops. Mm -hmm. They have bigger cannon, but fewer of them. Their cannon are slower firing. The, The English have wheels on their gun trucks so that they are able to roll them in and out and reload them quicker. Where the Spanish just slide these blocks of wood on the deck. So, you know, there's, there's a technological advantage to the English. They have better ships. They have better cannons. Their cannons are not as heavy, but their ships are smaller and they're faster mm-hmm. and more maneuverable. So they're basically able to sail rings around the Spanish. And so they do end up capturing a, a, a Spanish ship or two, a couple of Spanish ships. But then, then they break off. Well, then a couple of days later, there's another engagement. And in this one, there, there's a much closer engagement. The, the Spanish have now, or the French have, or <laughs> the English, and get all my players right here. I need a player. <laughs> the English have realized their advantages. The first encounter, they said, oh, hey, we're faster. We can shoot faster. You know, we're more maneuverable. We, we, we have an edge. So they came in the second time on them. And this time they took advantage of their, their maneuverability and everything. They did some damage to the Spanish fleet. I think they sunk two ships, but they damaged a lot more. Their cannon were lighter, so they couldn't do as much damage as far as sinking the ships. But they were able to knock down rigging and masts and, and you know, make it, you know, so that the ships needed help. Mm-hmm. Well, the, that encounter ends. The Spanish fleet sails to where they are supposed to meet the army from the Netherlands. They've had no communication between the commander of the army and the commander of the Navy. Okay. They don't know when they're supposed to be there or where. There's no radios. There's none of that. Yeah. But they, they didn't have any message traffic going back and forth at all. So the, the Spanish fleet gets there before the army does. And they have to wait. So they're at anchor now. They're immobile. There's no deep water port. So they couldn't sail into port and tie up to the dock. They're anchored offshore. They're waiting for the army to come out in boats. The army doesn't know the Navy's waiting for them yet. There's been no communication. (laughs) So that isn't working well. Meanwhile, they're in British waters. They're in the English Channel. The British fleet has been fighting these engagements and then going back to port, rearming, resupplying. The Spanish ships are running low on ammunition. You know, they're many days from Spain. They've fought Mm -hmm. two battles already. They've used up a lot of their ammunition to very little effect because they couldn't hit the smaller, faster British ships. Yep. And, uh, you know, if they'd have hit one, it had done some damage, but they were having trouble hitting them. And so, you know, they're low on ammunition. Their food supplies are going bad. Because their their food in the barrels is starting to rot, and their guys are getting hungry. And I mean, meanwhile, the British are well-fed because they're able to go home at night. Yeah. You know, they're fighting right on their doorstep. So now the, the Spanish fleet is at anchor. 
And what the British did was they used fire ships. They had multiple old ships that they filled with fuel. And they just set them loose upwind of the Spanish fleet so that they sailed right into the Spanish fleet, all these burning ships. Well, they didn't set a lot of Spanish ships on fire, but they caused the Spanish to scatter. And they had no way of regrouping because there's no radio. There's, there's, There's no searchlights. There's no way to communicate between ships, especially once they're outside of visual range, you know, a couple of miles. You can't see the other ship. You can't communicate. They're over the horizon. So they scattered the Spanish ship. Now, the Spanish ships that were still in the English Channel found themselves to be easy pickings for the English Navy. So most of the Spanish ships sailed north around Scotland and around Ireland and all the way back to Spain because they couldn't go back through the English Channel because Mm -hmm. they were scattered. So it wasn't even a fleet at this point. It's a collection of disjointed ships all trying to make their way back to Spain. Philip II's fleet, one out of every three ships made it back. He lost two-thirds of his navy. Wow. This not only ended the Spanish threat to England, this ended Spain as a world power completely. Yeah. Spain had been a huge world power. They have lost. This is the rise of Britannia rules the waves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now. This, this is, you said 1586? 1588. 1588. Yeah. Okay. So, so the sinking of the Spanish Armada. And now most of the ships that were sunk were sunk by the weather because they hit bad weather as they sailed around Scotland and back down on the, the west coast of, of Ireland. They hit mm-hmm. bad weather, and a lot of the ships were sunk in the bad weather. They weren't sunk by the English. The English only sunk a few ships, but the English, right. man, the English managed to scatter them to defeat the plot and everything. And this ended the Spanish threat to England. So that's, yeah. So then um, Elizabeth dies in 1603 at the age of 69. She reigned 44 years and 127 days. It's still one of the longest reigns. She's like number six, I think. And of course, Elizabeth II nowhere is nowhere near the the current. No, nowhere Elizabeth. near the current. But the current has modern medical technology. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, when did she come out? It was her 1950s. Yeah, she she was right after World War II. Yeah. Uh, I just saw it recently, and yeah, it's this is her right, my this is her jubilee year. Okay, she's coming up on seventy. Yeah. So. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So, which is, I mean, she's in her nineties. Yeah. 52. Yeah. Well, my parents were born in 54. It's going to be a sad day when Elizabeth, and I know we're getting close. She's in her 90s. Yeah. It's going to be a sad day. She's been Queen of England my entire life. Well, I think the writing was on the wall when Philip died that her time is probably not that far behind. Yeah. 
And it's, but boy, I sure, you know, a lot of, a lot of time memories mm -hmm. of Queen Elizabeth and, and she's an interesting, interesting person. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you as long as we're yeah. still on Elizabeth, if you've heard of this now, I don't know this in detail at all. The story I heard is kind of a, I don't want to say conspiracy theory. It's kind of more of a legend, kind of an alternative, okay. uh, alternative narrative to the history that we've been taught kind of thing. Um, about it, it's, it's, I thought it was fascinating. Now, like, like I said, it's been a while and I don't, I, I didn't hear a ton of details, let alone remember details. I'm interested but. to hear what you so she, she died unmarried, no right. heirs, correct? Correct. This, there's a legend that she did bear a child. There has been a story that because she, um, she was sick for a while. And so there was a rumor that she had had an affair with one of her advisors and had mm -hmm. gotten pregnant. and then when the, the child was either stillborn or the child was spirited away. France. Yeah. My story is yeah. kind of a little bit more on the spirited away yeah. side. Cause the, the French actually tried to bring forward someone who mm -hmm. said, you know, I'm the son of queen Elizabeth. And well, the story <laughs> I had heard that I thought was really fascinating was that she, that, that child may have been, actually Sir Francis Bacon. No. <laughs> and that, but then it gets really wild. Yeah. It gets really wild because the, because the theory goes on to say that Francis Bacon is the real, real person who wrote William, Shakespeare's play. Well, yeah. William Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. And, and that really the interesting part about the story is that a lot of times fiction is written with a political bent yeah. in, in a time and place where, uh, speech isn't quite free. Yeah. When speech isn't free, fiction tends to tell the stories that those want to tell that they can't yeah, I think, otherwise. I think Francis Bacon would be too old. Okay. I've been Elizabeth's child. I'd have to look at the birth dates. Um, and I think that the, the general consensus is that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, you know, yeah. For the most well, that's, part. Yeah. That's the, so, that's the mainline story. And so, that's why I thought it was kind of yeah, an interesting alternative a, <laughs> history story that suggested that he might've written. And because there's a lot yeah. of uh, like intrigue in Shakespeare and, yeah. and there are things that are kind of wo woven through his stories. Well, Shakespeare, that, Shakespeare was Elizabeth's favorite playwright. Now she would never go to the theater, but Shakespeare mm -hmm. and his company performed at the palace for Elizabeth on more than one occasion. And indeed, she liked the theater so much that she actually funded her own acting troupe sure. that would perform at the palace. So, you know, she liked Shakespeare, and and generally, it's believed that. Well, what if what if that is <laughs> that she knew that he was acting? Yeah, that the plays were actually written. Yeah, by her son. Yeah, her by her son, illegitimate son. Yeah, no, I I I don't think. I don't think the evidence is there, you know. Yeah, well, I, agree. I mean, you could speculate that you know she was actually an alien. I, from, I'm not. I'm not yeah. presenting this as <laughs> I know, like just I believe it's true. It's more of a yeah. uh, there's a mythology there that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I that's not one I've actually heard. I there okay. there was there was a a 
Does the myth tellers say yeah. that the real Shakespeare was kind of a not a very intelligent guy, yeah. kind of a loser, and and he was more of the um, and that this bacon would have been like his ghost writer. Yeah, oh, I I but uh, yeah, I've I've the the. I don't buy into that. <laughs> and, and a jolted guy who, who yeah. believed that he was the rightful heir to the throne, yeah. but could never be because I would out his mother for. Yeah. Well, one thing we do know for sure is that um, Henry VIII had a son. He had a bastard son who was almost as old as Mary. Okay. He was born between Mary and Elizabeth. The result of an affair, he acknowledged him. Um, his name was Henry Fitzroy. Fitzroy was yeah. a name given to a bastard of the king, Fitzroyal. Uh, this was a, a name given to a royal bastard. Everybody knew he was Henry's kid. He was raised in the palace. He was a favorite of Henry's. Henry knighted him. He may have even given him an mm -hmm. earldom. You know, he was he was he was well liked by Henry, but. He was illegitimate, and there was no way to legitimize him. There was no law that they could use to make him legitimate yeah. um, because he would always be a bastard, and so therefore he could not inherit. So, um, you know, we know that Henry had a son. Um, we know who he is. We know his history. He wasn't hidden at all, but because he was illegitimate, he couldn't have inherited. If Mary or if, if Elizabeth had had a bastard child, there's no way he could have inherited. And indeed, mm -hmm. one of the arguments that the Roman Catholics kept putting forth for getting rid of Mary or getting rid of Elizabeth in favor of Mary was the fact that the Pope did not approve Henry's divorce from Catherine. Therefore, mm -hmm. Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn was not legitimate. Therefore, Elizabeth was not legitimate and could not inherit the crown legally. That was one of their arguments for why she should be deposed, because she was illegitimate. And under Catholic law, she was. But then how do they explain theologically that their yeah. four plots against her all failed? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, if they're the legitimate... Uh, yeah, but you got to remember that they're not Calvinists. <laughs> <laughs> right. They don't necessarily believe in an absolutely sovereign God. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I, I I, don't know because they kept losing and they kept losing bad. And like I said, mm -hmm. in every one of these plots against her, other than the Spanish Armada, I mean, the Spanish Armada actually, you know, um, you know that, that was actual you know, warships and a battle. But mm -hmm. other than that first plot, the, the rise of the Northern Earls, there wasn't any action. All of the plots were uncovered by her spymaster and were headed off before they actually did anything. You know, they never mm -hmm. actually tried to kill Elizabeth. They never tried to break Mary, Queen of Scots out of prison. You know, none of it ever materialized. It all got headed off beforehand. But, uh, um, and that was just because she had the greatest spy master in the world. And yeah. so it, it's hard. I'm going to check out this book and I've already got a pile of books on the shelf that, uh, <laughs> you 
may never yeah. get read, but I'm going to at least check this out. Yeah, that's a that's a good the one. Queen's Agent. The Queen's huh? Agent. It's by a guy named Cooper. Let me, uh, excuse me, let me see if I can find out who that is. Hey, I got a text from you. Um, got a text from me? No, there was the message with the, with the oh, link. The, yeah. The, um. Twitter. Yeah, because I, I looked at it on my computer was how I got the link. Oh, okay. It was on my phone as well. Twitter, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. It is John Cooper. John Cooper. The okay. Queen's Agent by John Cooper. And uh, I, cool. I don't have any. any. Uh, well, you know, we were talking beforehand about um, future episodes, and, and we only got through half of your list. Tonight. I know. Yeah. And, but I want to talk something. I want to go back. Yeah, that's the, I, I, I did cross my <laughs> mind. Yeah. You talk slower. Um, we talked about, uh, we were kind of talking hypothetically, wouldn't it be funny um, to make the next one a November episode? <laughs> we can do that. Thinking, and, we and, uh, the- and so, but now that given, given where we're at, it might actually make sense. Cause I was yeah. thinking uh, a different train of thought than we were going to be like November of, 2023 yeah long past where we're at but um but the next one might be i have a little bit of a tie to november at least on one yeah because it's it's very much the uh um james becomes james the first of england in 1567 the gunpowder plot is 1605 or actually he becomes king of of england in in 1603 and the gunpowder oh, okay. plot is 1605. So it's okay. like the first thing we hit. November would be a good time to discuss the gunpowder plot. All right. Well, we'll uh, uh, I'll put you on the schedule. At, and uh, that makes it yeah. easy for me. I don't have to come up with a topic yeah. and a guest. So we'll, we will, we will st- I'll be back in November. We'll be starting the 17th You know century. what that means? You know what that means, Gene? Every six months. You could be. No, no. I was thinking, because I always do. Uh, Andrew and Fred in December, in December. And we talk about the year's episodes. You can be two of I could be Andrew's two of favorite them. episodes. Yeah. I'll, I'll start sending my money to Fred and, <laughs> and uh, Fred and Andrew. Yeah. yeah. Along with pictures of my yeah. hamster. Prove, prove to Andrew there really is a hamster. That was so funny. <laughs> you mean there's really a hamster? <laughs> he just thought it was a joke. He thought it was funny, yeah. but he thought it was a joke. So yeah, we have reached cool. the beginning of the 17th century. And the 17th century, you want to talk about a panorama of history of England. That'll be fun. It starts with the end of Elizabeth the First Reign. Mm-hmm. Then you have James, his son Charles I. You have the English Civil War. You have the restoration of the monarchy in Charles II. And uh, the Civil War is when you have all the witch trials. That's the, the 1640s, 1650s is when your big witch trials start. And well, don't give away the <laughs> don't, don't give away the whole plot for November. Well, everybody has Wikipedia. <laughs> 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 yeah. Interesting century. It starts with Elizabeth on the throne and it ends with the Salem witch trials. That's the 17th century. The Mm -hmm. 1600s are a very, very busy time 
Yeah. Well, I know we got into. Well, thanks so much, Gene. We got into a lot of politics and stuff. I was trying to keep it more on the. You know, we're talking about the history of the Reformation and the history of yeah Protestantism, but you can't keep the politics out of it because right. every one of these plots against Elizabeth was make England Catholic again. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very much Counter Reformation. Very much Counter Reformation stuff. Uh, violent, yep. violent, violently Counter Reformational. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, and I'll I'll uh I'll be in touch. I'll we'll record sometime in October. No, when I know ahead of time. Yeah, yeah, we, we can get on together the in October the and and have it. I post have it, it ready. For- the reason why this one's late is because I didn't come to you until uh, last yeah, week. I didn't and, think I heard, said, hey, heard from you in the la- middle of last week sometime. It was last week, so so the, we're in, we're in the May episode, and it's a late episode because of that. But uh, knowing that it'll what we're gonna do and when November first, we'll have part part three of the. That'll be English fun. Reformation. Well, at least, uh, hopefully, we'll get past James. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and and quite honestly, there's not a lot I want to talk about with James, so mm-hmm. we should be able to, to, you know, if we went another half hour, we could get through all of my notes tonight. So, <laughs> uh, well, I told you the floor was yours, yeah. and, and I, uh, but that's fine. And I did. I, I like tried to. Stuff, I tried to I talk slower. <laughs> This is uh, fun. I enjoy this. Yeah. I, I, cool. You can tell this is a topic that I'm fascinated by. Yeah, and I am too. Uh, and and I'm quiet. And that's one of the things I like about it too is I get to just be quiet and let you talk. <laughs> so, I love history. Uh, thanks, Gene. You bet. Thank you. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com support. That wraps up episode 169. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. Show notes, visit echozoe.com slash 169. I dropped the ball this month and I apologize to Gene that I didn't ask him to talk about his own podcast and ministry. It's kind of a normally a habit, so I don't even know how I missed that one this time around. But as I mentioned in the introduction, Gene does a podcast called Squirrel Chatter, which you can find in both audio and video formats all over the internet. I typically catch the uh, podcast feed, but I believe he also puts video up on. Twitter every day. And you can definitely find that at Christian Podcast Community, ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. Come join the locals uh, page, Echozoe Locals page at Echozoe.locals.com. That's L O C A L S.com. You can support the ministry there as well as interact with the community. And you can watch the film, Jerusalem's King, which is up at the locals page. Uh, don't forget to use the promo code, watch it for free. It's behind the paywall, but you can come back there completely free with that promo code at the top of the page. And I definitely look forward to seeing you there. Word Dwelling will be back next month with the June episode of Echo Zoe Radio. <laughs>